Welcome to the Civil Society Futures and Innovation Podcast from the International Civil Society Center. I'm Eva Gondorova, a project manager at the center. This podcast is a continuation of a conversation about solidarity in civil society and about the Solidarity Playbook, a collection of case studies and best practices to help civil society organizations respond to undue scrutiny and challenges and to enable learning on how to act in solidarity with civil society actors. The Playbook is a part of the Solidarity Action Network, which aims at strengthening resilience of and solidarity among civil society organizations. My guests today are Deborah Doan, a partner of Rights Collab and a consultant working on civic space and the future of civil society, and Sarah Pugh, a freelance research consultant focusing on social justice and human rights. Both of them are authors of the Solidarity Playbook. In this episode, we'll discuss why solidarity still matters and what we can learn from these case studies. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Eva. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Eva. Great to have you with us today. It's great to be back doing another podcast with you. Thank you. Yeah, really nice to be here. About a year ago, we actually had our first conversation about solidarity in civil society and about the pilot six case studies that you've written for the Solidarity Playbook. Since then, you capture further 12 case studies on how international civil society organizations and coalition have developed resilience and solidarity mechanisms to civic space restrictions and changing operating conditions for civil society. In the meantime, a global health crisis took center stage and solidarity became one of the key words of the past months. What have you learned about solidarity in civil society during the current crisis and in your recent conversation with international civil society organizations and coalitions? Are there any new elements that you came across? I think you know, just in terms of being in this current situation, the current crisis, I think in general, COVID-19 has really laid bare the need for locally driven responses to, to crises and issues, seeing as these crises are just increasingly transnational. And so whilst you know, the, the case studies that we cover in the playbook focus on civic space and are mainly examples from a sort of pre-COVID period, I think particularly those where solidarity takes the form of shifting power or shifting resources to strengthen civil society at the local level, we can see a really strong correlation between building resilience to closing space trends and also having the resources, the flexibility and those relationships of solidarity at the local level that are needed to respond to a crisis like the pandemic. So I think there's a really strong correlation there. But also just in general, I think there's been a sense amongst some of the conversations we've had that the pandemic and, and the responses to it may actually accelerate some of the modes and forms of solidarity that we've seen can strengthen civil society in the face of restricted or closing space. So we've seen that national groups have had to withdraw from certain areas, Funding has, has been changed. Unilateral groups have had to do more direct funding of local groups, which, you know, in a sense has actually forced the breaking down of some of those previous barriers around shifting resources to the ground. So in some ways, I think it could well accelerate some of those forms and tactics that, that we're suggesting are ways of displaying solidarity. Yeah, they're going to come about perhaps a bit quicker or, or be forced into play by, by the pandemic and, and the issues that have come along with it. I think it's also safe to say that COVID has sort of acted like a preview of what can happen in response to these transnational crises, you know, both the negative and the positive. So seeing some of those in power and certain regimes increasing restrictions, for example, increasing the restrictions to freedom of association or increasing surveillance. We've seen a lot of that. 
but also the positive in terms of how quickly change can happen, all the sort of grassroots activity that we've seen bubbling up, innovations at the local level, and just showing that that solidarity is needed more than ever so that there's that unified voice to help steer the agenda for whatever comes next. So I think lots lots of interesting changes and an activity around civic space and the changing context in which actors can operate, both good and bad. But then aside from COVID and, and the context of the pandemic, I think, you know, last time we spoke on, on the podcast, we talked about those first pilot studies and there was the sense that perhaps the ones that we'd focused on there were, you know, sort of more protective or, or reactive in nature and that we really wanted to dig more into how to act in solidarity with others and examples of how to bridge, you know, perhaps national responses with the international level. And I do think that the new studies that we've that we've managed to collate really speak to, to some of this and have deepened our understanding of those different modes and levels of solidarity. So I think we can we can definitely speak to that today. Definitely. I'm definitely curious to hear more about it. I'd like to hear also from Demora what she thinks about solidarity in this sector. And I mean, what you also mentioned, Sarah, the pandemic has brought another burden to, to civil society organization, already struggling with closing civic space in, in many different contexts. So I want to hear from you, Deborah, why should civil society actors not only focus on, on strengthening their own resilience, but also on building solidarity with others? In an earlier iteration of my thinking around civic space, we had a model, and I think we bring this up in the, some of our first summary work, which is around resistance versus resilience. And when it comes to civic space strategies, the two go hand in hand. So you need a resilient civil society if civic space is closing, but you also need a, a resistant civil society. And there's quite a few ways in which we're seeing that manifesting right now. And I think you know, solidarity in the light of what's happening in somewhere like India is now more important than ever, because it's not just about responding to the humanitarian crisis, but actually having an enabled civil society with access to funding, with the ability to use voice is critical to respond to the humanitarian crisis. And I think civil society actors together should be starting to think about what solidarity means beyond just the humanitarian response or how you can link the two, because it provides a really great opportunity to think about the long-term importance and narrative building around why we need a healthy civil society. It's not just about ensuring a resilient civil society, but it's solidarity around the mechanisms that enable a free and open civil society as well. And there's quite a lot that international actors can be doing on that front in this pandemic. You actually both underlined how important solidarity is also in the current context and why we actually need more of it and that it's not only about focusing on resistance and resilience, but definitely on building uh, more solidarity in civil society. So Sarah, if we look concretely at working in solidarity, where and with whom do civil society organizations practice it? Yeah, as you say, across the playbook, we, we came across lots of different examples of actors building or in fact strengthening relationships with others in different ways. And this really did depend on the context, you know, when, when figuring out where and with whom to, to work in solidarity. We saw that actors were really considering the political environment and a risk analysis of the context, the needs of different actors who they were partnering or collaborating with, 
the quality of those existing relationships, you know, was the trust there to work in solidarity together, but also the legitimacy of, of different actors in different, in different situations. So across all of that, we, we sort of saw four broad dimensions of solidarity in terms of the levels that, that it was playing out in. So those four dimensions, the first was intra-organisational, and this is really about solidarity between different parts of an ICSO family or federation. And so thinking about solidarity across the organization. So for example, this might be you know, support between an international secretariat and national offices. And I think a really good example of that is in the Islamic Relief Worldwide, one of the original pilot case studies in terms of the support that the secretariat coordinated and developed for national and regional partners. There's certainly then you know, examples of solidarity between different, different departments, even within an organization. So program staff collaborating with finance staff on, on pilot projects that look at how to shift resources. So we saw that in the Plan International study in Latin America. And then between regional offices as well, whether that's advocacy and support or sharing of, of information and learning from different contexts. So we saw that, for example, in the Transparency International study in Cambodia. The second type of solidarity is intersectional. So this is, given that civic space is is such a, an existential and cross-sector issue. It really does require actors from across a range of issues and sectors to come together for a unified response and a unified voice. And that you know, obviously involves coalition work. And we saw this at different levels, so globally and locally, but most common, it was at the national or subnational level. So we see this in, in the Bond UK case study, for example, where actors from across civil society came together around restricting space in the UK, but also internationally. We saw this in the It Works coalition in Poland, where actors came together to try and change the narrative around the value and meaning of civil society. So the third type is then international. So this is really about solidarity that connects the national to the international level. So for example, this might mean an ICSO linking their local partners to international mechanisms. So we saw this in the Helvetas case study, where they helped to connect local partners and groups of local partners to UN mechanisms to sort of help coordinate and build capacity around advocacy. And that's particularly important when, you know, space is, is closing at the national level to be able to link up to the multilateral level. Or we saw this, you know, in terms of connecting different national partners around a single issue. So, for example, the Keep It On campaign connects different, different actors in different regions around this one issue of internet shutdowns. And then finally, solidarity with local civil society. So, this might be between, for example, international actors and formal or informal groups who are at the forefront of attacks in particularly restricted contexts. So it might be working in solidarity with social movements or activists or networks who need specific support. And I think we, we see a really good example of this in Plan International in terms of an ICSO figuring out how to provide better support and work more in solidarity with youth groups. But also we saw examples where this kind of solidarity really was quite hard to come by and was you know, sort of much needed. So I think the, the examples from Nicaragua and, and Malawi specifically show, you know, local civil society, whether it's in networks or movements that, that really did need more of that international support for capacity, but also just, I think, psychological support and solidarity as well. So those are those four levels, so the, the intra-organisational, intersectional, the international and the local. And I think it's important to note that these types of solidarities can be combined and, and are needed at multiple levels. So whether that's sort of simultaneous campaign of raising global awareness and building collaboration, but also then supporting protection at the local level. This idea of a pincer movement where 
where solidarity is being acted out at multiple levels at the same time. There are different levels of solidarity or different levels in which organizations actually practice solidarity. And there's often an interplay between these different dimensions, as you, as you call them. But I think even more important is how civil society organizations work in solidarity, as there has often been an assumption that solidarity requires speaking out publicly about closing civic space. But you also explored ways of working in solidarity that were not public-facing. So, Deborah, can you tell us more about different ways of working in solidarity? How is solidarity demonstrated in practice? It's a really important question because, you know, I'm a, I'm a campaigner by training. I spent many years as a campaigner and an activist. And there is that assumption that, and my, you know, myself included, I want to shout from the rooftops when things are going awry and call out injustice where you see injustice. But I think what was really interesting from all of these case studies that we looked at, that there are other ways to show solidarity. And not only that, it needs to be discussed and negotiated with people on the ground. What do they need from international actors? What do they need from solidarity? So what we found was a real spectrum of quiet solidarity and more public-facing solidarity. And I think it's just so important to acknowledge because it gives you a lot more opportunities and things in your toolkit. So, you know, the, the quiet solidarity would be a shifting power approach, which is really just about navigating and negotiating, getting more resources, power and decision making on the ground from an INGO partner and letting go of power in effect. And that's certainly what the, the plan example did in Latin America. There's a facilitative quiet solidarity. So, uh, you know, ICSOs do often have a lot of resources and connection to be able to make between the local and the international level. And Sarah already mentioned the, the Helvetas example. That was what we would call a quiet, facilitated sort of solidarity. Helping to adapt was another form of kind of quiet solidarity. So in closing civic space to enable an organization to keep functioning, to have influence, they may need to adapt their programs. And, you know, we saw that in Transparency International in Cambodia. One of our earlier case studies, ActionAid in Uganda, was about helping the local organization, the, the national chapter of the organization, adjust to the situation, be it administrative adjustment, the way that they talk about their programming. And that is a form of solidarity, which people may not have considered before. One other form which kind of bridges the gap between the more quiet and the public facing is the coordinating type of solidarity, where the ICSO might have the resources to help coordinate coalition work. BSO in Ethiopia was a really good example of that, about helping to host and coordinate the national platform. They had solidarity from their international secretariat to enable them to do that. And that's taking on some of the risk and the shared risk amongst organizations. That's a really really positive form of solidarity that an ICSO can play. And then there's the obvious, more public-facing types of solidarity, obviously campaigning. You know, we mentioned the, the Access Now's Keep It On campaign, which is a great example. Again, in our earlier case studies, we had Greenpeace Protect the Protest campaign, where they brought together a number of actors to protect protest in the U.S., in this most recent iteration, we've got Poland's It Works campaign. It's a fantastic solidarity campaign that's intersectional, that basically just tries to tell that narrative story publicly about 
what civil society does and how it's so effective. So that's a real public facing. And then you've got the more hard edged public facing types of solidarity, which is probably what we're certainly more campaigners are familiar with, which is the political and legal side. And that takes a certain level of risk taking. It takes a lot of resource and shared ownership. And we have two really good case studies, I think, in the playbook, Malawi, the Malawi Human Rights Defenders Coalition, where they actually connected with the Malawi Law Society to challenge the government for their space to function as civil society. It was really important and successful, even though it was incredibly challenging. We had another case study that we found in in Nicaragua where feminist activists really raised the stakes and came together politically about the issue and politicized the issue of civic space and got engaged in that issue. It's very challenging, I think, in closing civic space environments to be on that political legal end And so it's really important for partners in solidarity to negotiate and navigate what that means, what do they need from ICSOs and and how they can really support them if they're going through those political legal angles and also how to manage the risk associated with that because it is risky both for the ICSO and for the actors on the ground, but it can be an important strategy. Thank you very much for actually listing this whole spectrum of of solidarity all the way from quiet to public solidarity. And you mentioned that solidarity needs to be negotiated, also risks needs to be negotiated and and taken into consideration. But I'm wondering from our experience and, and conversation you had with case study partners, do you feel that some of these modes of solidarity are more effective than others or is it possible also to combine them? I really think it's important to look at the national context. It has to be contextualized and it does need to be negotiated. A more public facing strategy can be absolutely effective in the right context. But if the national groups think that puts them more at risk and don't think it's a good idea, then it's not right. It needs to be discussed and adapted for the situation. I think there's a tendency to shy away from risk because of our regulators, because of international funding restrictions and a whole host of other things. But then that means local organizations are bearing the brunt of the risk. And I think that risk needs to be shared better. And so that's the type of thing that needs to be negotiated when you're thinking about which strategy or which strategy to use in combination. I think Access Now is a a brilliant example of a really decentralized campaign supported by Access Now, but Keep It On is decentralized, sort of very much owned by the members of that campaign and coalition, where there's action taking place at the the global level in terms of getting internet shutdowns recognized as an infringement of, of rights. There's then work around, you know, specific shutdowns in in specific locations, whether that's preventative action, or then reacting to that, bringing global awareness to that shutdown, bringing direct technical support to actors in that shutdown area to try and find workarounds and create access to, to the internet. But also then they have a funding mechanism where grassroots grants are going out to those organizations most affected by internet shutdowns, and even a storytelling arm to help raise more awareness about the experience of those organizations and people in those areas with with internet shutdown and less access, so that there's almost a sort of learning cycle built into that. So it's not about picking one form or mode of solidarity, it's about in collaboration with others, 
figuring out the right mix for that specific context. Thank you very much, Sarah, for the introduction and explanation of how the interplay between different modes of solidarity takes place, and especially for underlining that actually solidarity does not happen in, in rigid categories, but there is often an interplay and, and shifting between these, uh, depending on where opportunities arise, and I think also how risk-friendly civil society actors are. Now, building on your experience, Sarah, what would you recommend civil society organizations that want to practice more solidarity, but perhaps don't know where to start? Well, they should read the playbook, for sure. <laughs> um, they, should, they should start the solidarity playbook and, and take part in the same conversations. But no, beyond that, I can definitely come up with a few recommendations. I think one really important one is dedicating resources to this. So you'll see in the case studies that some of the organizations we spoke with, they conducted studies and dedicated time and money and capacity into reviews and strategy developments. And one learning there was how important it was for the right people to be involved in those processes. So not just program staff or policy staff looking at you know, interactions with local partners, but also financial and legal staff being involved because there's a chain of relationships that needs to be considered when, when sort of trying to change behavior. Um, I think that comes across really strongly in the Plan International example, where, where finance staff were actually fundamental to the project that they, that they rolled out. Others, though, who, who haven't had you know, necessarily the resources for those large reviews or, or shift in strategy have actually made use of small innovation funds that are available within organizations. And so in this way, internal champions have been able to develop new tools and strategies for solidarity in particularly restricted contexts, which, which can then be scaled up across the organization and in different contexts. And I think we see that in Helvetas, where you know, they, they took an innovation fund, developed learning that already existed within the organization around connecting local partners to UN mechanisms, and then really sort of ran with that and built capacity of country officers and programmatic staff to, to use that learning. So yeah, de dedicating resources, I think, is paramount. And that's also really important thinking about the coalition work as well. Civic space can actually sometimes be seen as a diversion away from core programming. And so engagement in coalitions or, or collaborative work perhaps isn't prioritized. And I think thinking about coalitions where building trust and making collective decisions takes time and care, resources are needed for that. And I think underestimating it can really undermine the attempts to build solidarity and sustain it. Deborah mentioned BSO Ethiopia as a, as a fantastic example of solidarity. They really did see an enabling environment as core to their vision. Civic space wasn't a diversion. It was absolutely core to their vision for sustainable development. And I think that's why they could make the case for investing in coordinating resistance and, and building solidarity at the country level and having support from the International Secretariat for that and, and taking the time to build trust, to build a shared vision of the values and create common ownership across the civil society sector. So I think it's important to think about the resources needed there. And I think just really underlining that it's, it's not a simple choice between public advocacy on the one hand or maintaining access in a specific context on the other. The idea of that spectrum of modes being available to organizations, that the right mix really does need to be negotiated with partners so that you know who is holding what risk. And then finally, I think on that note of negotiating trust and agreeing red lines, I think in coalitions, that idea of agreeing shared values was so important. There's something like a coalition that's working on civic space that's going to be so cross-sector, the risk appetites and priorities can really vary. 
And this was a challenge that came up amongst a lot of the coalition examples. You know, we saw the groups had to work really hard in the beginning to articulate and establish their shared values, but doing so really formed a solid base for building collective action and helped establish common ownership, which was another really important factor in then sustaining that collective action. So I think this comes across really strongly in the in the Poland example and in Hungary, that idea of having to establish those, those shared values up front and the time and resource that that takes. I'd like to pick up on the first point that you actually mentioned, a need to dedicate resources, because when we talk about solidarity and also negotiating solidarity, we often hear from, from ICS and CSO that we work with uh, that there is also a strong need to, to bring funders uh, into these conversations. So how could actually funders contribute to more solidarity in the sector? You know, there's probably four key things other than giving resource, obviously, but adjusting expectations. I mean, I think in the areas of civic space, we need to be clear that real outcomes won't be seen after, you know, six months or one year project. They will be through long term sustained investment over time. And sometimes in terms of adjusting expectations, it's actually if we can keep that resilient civil society and alive and functioning and able to maintain operating even that that in itself is a success. So I think we have to really examine what are our expectations about around solidarity and investment for, for civic space, because it's not as clear as we're going to build a well or a health center or get 200 girls educated. It's something slightly less tangible for many people. And if it's, you know, getting into legal and other changes, of course, those could take some years to change the narrative before you even get to a point of political and, and legal engagement. I think the second recommendation would be to share the risk. And we have talked about that quite a bit, you know, that who is placing the burden of risk, who is holding that burden. Usually it really is those civic actors on the ground. So there are ways in which funders can share the risk through really thinking differently about what they need in terms of reporting, accountability and so on. I think the third thing would be to invest in platforms and infrastructure. Our case studies couldn't be clearer. Even those ones that we focused on, which were about what an individual organization did with its own partners, they all involved the ecosystem of civil society in some way. Uh, technical expertise that's needed by platforms that could be legal, that could be financial, was really, really important. And coalitions always express the difficulty in them accessing funds. So I think making space and understanding the role of those platforms and the infrastructure of the ecosystem of civil society is a really important opportunity to, to invest in. And finally, I would say funders can play a really important bridging role. So funders have this unique kind of helicopter view of the space. You know, many funders are funding across different countries and they can see a parallel between one country and another. And I think they can help bridge those who are learning in one context with those who are new to it in another and bring that to bear, not just for other funders, but for the civil society ecosystem as well. So asking funders to use their helicopter view to play a bridging role would be a really useful thing that they can be doing to help build solidarity. 
I think there are really relevant points that you just made. So we also make sure to include them in, in our future conversation with funders, with, uh, with the key findings that we were just talking about. So we're coming to the end of our conversation. But uh, before I let you go, do you have any final point that you would like to make? I guess for me, it's more of a plea. <laughs> in that I think going back to your very starting point with the podcast, Eva, around the current context, and because you know we started this work before the pandemic, is a plea to think about the connection between the two going forward, to strategize about COVID response, what is the future of ICSO, and what do we need to do to enable the environment for civic space in light of that. And I think our case studies underpin that connection and they can give a really good guiding point for strategizing, you know, a post-pandemic world, hopefully. Thank you very much, Deborah and Sarah, for sharing your really interesting insights, learnings, recommendations. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to learn more about the Solidarity Playbook and its key findings, follow the links in the description. A big thanks to our case study partners for making their experience and learnings publicly available and to our producer, Julia Puzzles. See you next time.